So nice to welcome you to On Mike with Jordan Rich as we round out 2020. Not a moment too soon. And we continue to have amazing guests and terrific people joining us on a podcast that celebrates creativity. Before I introduce my guest, a reminder that my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, is now available. You can order it through Amazon.com or through my website, JordanRich.com. All proceeds benefit Boston Children's Hospital. It's a personal radio memoir I hope you'll like. Now, joining us today is John Reinman. He's a comic and one of the best comedy writers on the planet. He's appeared on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon as the head monologue man for years. He's also written for Comics Unleashed and Gotham Comedy Live. He earned a Writers Guild nomination and an Emmy nomination back in 2011 writing for Jimmy Fallon. John was nominated for another Emmy in 2014 and a Writers Guild Award in 2016. He contributed to Seth Meyers' monologue at the 2011 White House Correspondence Dinner, and he's performed regularly at the Comedy Cellar in New York and other venues. I'll be talking with John about how he has teamed up with some comedic friends to create Anti-Social Skills, a situation-based adult party game, and also will focus on him being an advocate for the Arthritis Foundation. He himself was diagnosed with the disease at age 16. A great comic mind and a very fine gentleman. It's my pleasure to welcome to On Mike. John Ryman, who, like me, hails from the Boston area. Yeah, from Northampton, New Hampshire. Went to Winnicott at high school and then uh, Emerson College. And uh, actually, uh, during lockdown and then for a little while, a couple of years ago, uh, I've done some teaching there. So, yeah, a local guy and, you know, always been kind of a, an East Coast guy. The first I've really gone is uh, New York as far as uh, my comfort zone. Yeah, local guy and uh, it just so happens that Sam Liberty, who is the person who kind of recruited me to come in and work on this game, as an old friend that I've known for almost 20 years, and he was uh, one of my roommates uh, at Emerson. So it's kind of a small world that things kind of came full circle. John, I am so excited about getting a chance to pick your brain. There's so much to talk about. Let's focus on where you are right now. I mean, you left The Tonight Show recently. What's life like? Well, yeah, I, I left Fallon in 2018, and I was kind of like a lot of people. I was sort of in the development process, then lockdown happened. Kind of feel like Tom Hanks in the terminal, where you're like a person <laughs> of that country all of a sudden. is just like, uh-oh, now do I do? Mm. And um, yeah, when I was there, I did kind of split it. I, I did do stand-up all the way through, even when I was a uh, supervising writer. I kept trying to get away from stand-up. My, my only real goals for stand-up ever were, I mean, really, initially I got into it just to meet people who could help me get the writing job. Uh, that was kind of the ulterior uh, motive. And I started out at uh, the Comedy Studio, which is now over in uh, Somerville. I started out there in college, and I, I did meet the people I met, uh, like Brian Kiley, who was Conan's head monologue writer. You know, it's like if you're, if you're going to do stand-up, if you're going to keep getting stage time, you have to try to be good at it. You have to learn how to do it. So I did. And so my only goals really were, there were just a couple famous people I wanted to share a stage with, you know, maybe at a place like the Comedy Cellar in New York. And I just wanted to do um, just a late night set. And we used to talk about it in college, Sam and I, when we were watching Conan. And he would say, like, man, it'd be cool if you could do late night someday. Mm. And so I did that. And then I got to do spot on The Tonight Show. And so that was kind of it. I was kind of good with that. consider myself more of a writer. But what I found was writing for me would get worse if I weren't also performing. I would kind of lose my chops a little bit. I'd get a little sloppy, a little lethargic, and, you know, the show would still do fine, but 
I wasn't getting a ton on, you know, so mm. it'd be a lot of days where I would say, okay, I'm going to take more time away to just focus on, this is like when I was in charge of the monologue for Jimmy and it was like, okay, I'm going to take time away and focus on uh, just writing for a while. You know, two weeks in, I'd start to notice the monologue was getting worse. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. then he would, he would kind of, you know, I like, it would it'd be like, I would notice it at first and then other, like right when other people are noticing. So then I would call, like, you know, I'd put in a couple clubs for the weekend. I'd go do it and I'd come back and sure enough, I'd be right back good again. So it was this weird thing where I kept trying to not do stand up. You know, I think the benefit when you're writing monologues, you put yourself in the host's shoes and you understand how a joke's going to sound when it comes out and you understand how they're going to feel telling the joke. You know, I, I, I kind of feel like they, they depend on each other. And so that's why, for me, uh, this project's been good during lockdown just because, I don't know, it's been so long since I was just doing stand-up. It would be weird to do that and not have another writing gig to kind of, you know what I mean? Because what I found is that and I guess this is what all stand-ups go through. And I have tremendous respect for people who are full-time stand-ups and that's their career. It is a job, you know, and it's, you have to travel a lot, you know, in a normal world. And, you know, you, you have to go do a lot of things to remote. And it starts to feel like a job. And I remember a really good balance because I, on hiatus weeks from Fallon, I'd go out on the road and I'd do like a, mm. a week of gigs on the road. And it would always be super fun at the start. Uh, but there would come that time, you know, like Thursday night or whatever, where I'd be like, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to not have to go up and talk for 45 minutes tonight after <laughs> and say the same thing I've been saying all week. And, you know, it was bittersweet. There are some weeks where at the end I was sad that it ended, but then my writing was always better. When I'd go back to work, it would just kind of re-energize me. And so it was a nice balance. And it was good to have the writing job because it made stand-up seem fun. It made it seem like a fun hobby that you go do secretly after school. And then, you know, the stand-up was good for the writing because it, it, it made me think through Jimmy's perspective and, like, how does it feel to say this joke? And so they, they helped each other. Right, so, right. You know, I must say you're part of comedy writing royalty to be writing for The Tonight Show, the monologue. I mean, you think about the Carson days and even Jack Parr and all those amazing monologists that uh, wrote for these guys that were well, they became iconic. And Jimmy is such a brilliant guy. I mean, so talented in so many different areas. Was it a case of getting to know you, Jimmy, and really getting to understand him after a couple of weeks or a couple of months? How long did it take for you to really get him? You know, I was there for about nine years. And I think that's the longest any monologue writer was there. Mm. And so when I first got there, it was simply a matter of I had for a while been I'd written some jokes for Jay Leno, written some stuff for Seth Meyers. Jimmy's show was only six months old, and so they were still new, and they were still finding their voice and trying new things. And there was no real theme. There was no real... It was kind of just like, let's just try a bunch of jokes. So when I got there, I kind of just pretended I, I just took what I learned from writing for Jay and just tried it on Jimmy and just put a different spin on it. And there was just little things like wording and little intricacies, like I'm... Like, I'm, I'm a total nerd when it comes to monologue jokes, but, like, just <laughs> the construction of it and the run-up, and there's just little, like, I, it's, I, I'm crazy the way, I, like, I overanalyze it, break it down, and be like, oh, well, this part, you know, needs to be longer or whatever, but I knew all that from from learning, from yeah. writing stuff for Jay. But it, it seems to me that that would be a pressure gig of the first order, knowing that, all right, it's another night, it's new, fresh news items, fresh stories, fresh ideas, and i got to come up with killer material. Oh, but I, yeah, it was, but I loved that part of it. And that was, I mean, that's good and bad. I mean, mm. it was, you know, ultimately that's what, you know, burned me out in the end, uh, at least that iteration, at least in that job, um, because 
you know, I did embrace the pressure probably more than you should. Um, but I loved that part of it because to me it felt exciting. Uh, it felt like every day, uh, you know, it was like being on a baseball team. It was like every day you had a game and anything could happen. And um, I loved waking up and not knowing what it was going to, you know, what things were going to be. And so when I first started there, I think I fit because I was so different from everybody else. I wasn't, everybody else there was very cool, uh, you know, the kind of person you want to hang out with at a party. And Jimmy, I think, is that the image he puts out there. That's who he wants to be. He likes to be in music and partying and dancing and stuff. But I think that there's this, this you know, and he also displays this too. There's underneath, there's kind of this nerdier side. There's kind of the, you know, can't get a prom date uh, hmm. side. And so that's who I was. And so I came in and I kind of added that voice of sort of the, like, you know, the, the kid. I mean, who I am. I grew up every day. The first thing I'd read every morning was The Far Side by Gary Larson. <laughs> Me and so too. I was that guy. <laughs> and so I was the nerdy, weird guy. And yeah. I added some, and I kind of added that element. And we found a new, like, by mistake, they found that new gear in Jimmy. They were like, oh, he can also do this. Like, he can also play on he's a cool guy now but he can play on when he was a nerdy kid and so that's why it worked for me there and then i think as i got to know him a little bit better um we we're it's so funny because we're i feel like um i think we each secretly at times like i mean he's jimmy fallon and i'm just a writer so i'm not putting myself on that level but like on a human being level at times i think he kind of there, there are times that he would take a new approach and try to do things more my way, which is more the watching documentaries and mm. trying to write more and all that kind of stuff. And there's times where I'd look at him and say, man, I wish I could just be fun. And I wish I could just <laughs> be into music and go to parties and have a good time. And I think that's why it kind of worked is that, um, I, you know, we each kind of like the same sort of thing. We each yeah, like we compliment each, each other. Boys. We yeah. Each, yeah. We love the beach. We turned, we had, I remember one day he came into my office, my first year there, and he just came in, and I thought he was coming in looking for uh, our, one of our head writers, but he just came in to just talk. And, uh, you know, like, what are you into? What are you, what's going on? And we found out uh, we both love the Beach Boys, and we both love wrestling, and we each have, you know, just one sister that's our only sibling, and it's a very similar dynamic between us and our sisters. And um, we had a lot in common. And so we were two guys who, and we're both, you know, Catholic, and, you know, uh, we were both from, you know, the Northeast and small towns. And so we're two people who had very similar childhoods and mm. just kind of went different ways with it. And he went to be the, the Jimmy Fallon. And I was more, you know, I just kind of took a more conservative approach than Emerson, where I was like, everyone's trying to be a performer. And I remember an advisor was there. I was like, yeah, you're, you know, you're a great joke writer and a great producer. And you can do all the behind, you know, this is, you have a handle yeah. on this. Yeah. And so I kind of went the other way. And so, that kind of got us through the middle part of me being there was um, just kind of finding common interests and uh, things that we both like. We both love, like, you know, the vacation movies with Clark Griswold and everything. <laughs> and I just kind of found, I would pick up on little things, but I would say, oh, this, I get it. Like, I, this is, yeah, I see who he is. So then when I took over as a supervising the monologue, there's, <laughs> then you get the third level. And like a video game, that's, that's, the, that's the hardest level. You go behind the curtain a little bit more. And um, you get, uh, I guess, to be diplomatic, I would say, uh, some more direct feedback than you might get if you're just a regular staff writer. 
when you're the person who's in charge of everything and um, maybe the stuff wasn't uh, favorably viewed that day by the host, you would be told as much. It would be mm. a little more direct. And so the first couple weeks of that, really the first month or so, especially since I just had my first child, um, was really challenging because it was like getting to meet the other Jimmy, so to speak. It was yeah. like the you know, the boss Jimmy and it was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> but then even but then even there, um, there was kind of a time where I just learned the heart. You just had to, you know, when you're in the hole, you just have to keep swinging. And so, um, you know, we just kept on going. And so finally my attitude was just to stop being nervous about it. And I was like, well, look, uh, either this is going to work out, you know, either, either he's going to hate these jokes and that's going to be the end of me, or, um, I'm going to do this my way, which is the only way I know how to do it. And, it'll work and we'll have a good monologue. And I'll remember, like, we had a day in rehearsal because we used to rehearse for a live audience where he really didn't want to do a joke and I just put it in. And I remember him looking at me and I was just, like, looking back, like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You could skip it if you want. And he read it and the audience went crazy for it was a good joke. And he kind of looked over at me and it was almost kind of like getting the wink, like, all right, you're okay. Yeah. Like, this is going to work. <laughs> and so then we had a really good run from, like, July or June 17 until into 18. And so I did it for about almost a year. No, I did it for a year. And, um, it, then that was kind of the, you know, I, I had hoped to stay longer. I didn't know that there were going to be some other changes coming along in the show that, uh, made it tougher to stay for a lot of us. Um, but it was a really, you know, that's where I really started to appreciate you know, the moment. And I did start to think about, you know, the, the, the prestige of the tonight show. And at the same time, antenna TV was running reruns of Johnny Carson. And so I would go home after work and, um, you know, right before bed, I would watch the, the whatever monologue that Johnny had done, like, you know, 35 years ago that night on antenna TV. And, I'd be like, oh, my God. Like, I think to myself, in my laptop, right here on my lap, I'm writing what they did on the same show 35 years ago. Mm, pretty and awesome. It was really amazing. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. It was awesome to have Jimmy be happy uh, with it and to be part of it and sit next to him in rehearsal and have Lauren come into the room. And, and um, yeah, and it was just at the same time, though, you know, I was getting the end of nine years. I was getting burned out. Um, there were some health issues that came along that I didn't know. So... You know, it didn't end the way I wanted it to. Um, in fact, it's kind of one of those deals where um, I'm not, neither, no one's quite sure how it ended, other than I'm not there anymore. Um, but, um, you know, I still keep in touch with a lot of those guys. And, um, you know, I miss it. I think, like everybody, like I remember, you know, some of Letterman's people saying, you have work dreams the rest of your life. You have to get a <laughs> card to the, the host or whatever. And it's amazing. Let, let me. And, uh, let me ask you a, yeah. one more question about the joke writing, because you may be familiar with the fact that Joan Rivers, God rest her soul, uh, had a card catalog of jokes. She would literally, mm -hmm. like a library, and I saw it in a documentary, and I asked her about it once. When you're writing so much material every night for years, how do you catalog what you've done? I mean, besides having a videotape copy of it, did you have a system, your own system that worked out? Um, so I would try to set, well, at first I, I used to set a number. And there was just too many things for me to follow. <laughs> like 
Hmm. Started out with Jay's advice was, you know, you got to write half your monologue the night before. Okay, I was going to do that. Then it was Anthony Jeselnik, who was a writer, and you know, Anthony oh, Jeselnik him. now, yeah. but he he was a writer at the time, and he, his advice was write when you got to write at least twenty killers the night before in case you oversleep. I was like, <laughs> okay, so I got to write half the monologue and twenty of them have to be killers. And then there's this other writer, Eric Legend. He's like, you know what? I get a lot of work done on the subway. It's just kind of nice on my phone. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write on the phone. So, like, that's what burned me out. And imagine doing that for nine years where you're just like, I have, like, you know, this Nomar adjust your batting gloves routine of, like, these are all the things I do to write the jokes. And so it started off where I was following all those rules and a certain number of pages I had to get to before I could go to bed. And and it was was a lot, man. It was, like, four or five. And, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't start until after 9 p.m. And uh, then finally I said, okay, I'm going to set a time limit for this and, then it kind of got to, you know, when I was running the mono, it was, okay, I'm going to try to write as much as I can on the train. Uh, and I had it timed out so that each way I'd write about 10 jokes, which is about a page, and then I'd write for maybe an hour and a half or two hours the night before. And that was kind of the routine. And then as far as cataloging, I mean, like, first of all, like, I think for stand-up, I think what everyone kind of does is everyone has, like, nowadays, it used to be, like, some people still do have, like, a notebook. I just don't like, I have rheumatoid arthritis, so I don't like, I don't like writing very much, but I, I can type just fine and I like putting things into my phone. So I kind of just have like a Google doc of everything that yeah. I use for stand up yeah. with notes and how everything's going. And, uh, that way you can move things around and everything like that. That's kind of how I do it. I just do it by keyword a lot of the time. And, um, and then I tape every set when I'm doing stand up, so I can go back and listen to it and, a lot of times people say to me, like, man, that was a great set. I wish I taped it. And I'm like, why didn't you? You have a phone. <laughs> like, every, everyone should tape every set. You have a phone with you that you put on the stool. So I always tape it yeah. when I do stand-up. Because you never know. You might get have, a new one. Have you read uh, Jerry's book, the new one, is, is This Anything? Have you read Seinfeld's latest? Which is basically yeah. basically jokes from decades, decades of material. Great. And I, and I love that. And I'm such a nerd for that. You know what I did during uh, lockdown was for another project that may or may not. There, at one point, there was talk of, because there was a whole bunch of, like, I, as one of my students at Emerson pointed out that I've had this sort of Forrest Gump-like existence where it's like, I'm not known, I'm not famous or anything, but it's like I, I worked for Jimmy and I was there during... The, the Trump hair tussle, and I was there for that. And, you know, I wrote this joke that got Donald Trump really upset one time, and then I yes. worked for Vince McMahon for a while and all these other weird gigs. And uh, just have come in contact with the Beach Boys and, like, these people I'd kind of mm-hmm. come in contact with. And so there was, this, you know, there was, I was, there was a book project in the works at one point uh, to kind of chronicle that and kind of chronicle being, you know, and also a mental health aspect of it because there's a... You know, I won't go into it here, but there's a, you know, a there was a dangerous, um, you know, element. Like I said, there was a, a, a health uh, scare that I had a couple of years ago that was the result of just working too hard. Mm. And so while I was working on that project, um, and then, you know, like everything was locked down, it kind of fell apart. I, I think the agent got laid off or whatever, but for whatever reason, I, I didn't have a lit agent anymore, and then I realized... So the game came along, it didn't have a happy ending either. So I was like, well, what use this is a sad story right now. But while I was doing that, I actually went back through, and I have a daughter who's three and a half, and I set up an email account for her, so to you know, email her stuff as she grows. 
And I just was like, well, you know, who knows if there's going to be late night shows and who knows who's going to be the host. But I wanted her to see all the work I'd done. That's know, before, great. You know, and so what I did That's was great. I went through every single, I, I kept track. There was like a credit that we used to get every day. And I added up and it was something like, I think the number was 2,545 jokes for Jimmy. Oh, and wow. I had them all and it was, and I have to say that like it was bittersweet because it made me miss those easier times when we were number one and he was the top host and everything was fun. And there were some days that, you know, I got choked up thinking about, but it was really fun to go through because, and so there, to answer your question, like I do have everything, every joke he ever told, uh, just because I wanted to show it to my daughter, I did catalog it, and I came up and I, the number. I really do um, want you to consider, though, the the book idea. I just finished my my little memoir of my own about radio. And oh, I life. would love. If you have any help, I mean, if any if anyone out there is listening, uh, please contact me because uh, I know it's a super difficult process. I will uh, I will off air off podcast give you an insight into that because I had someone oh, help me with the construction but it's an amazing cathartic experience and you have so many stories that you could share including your own personal one and and I do want to close with your work for the Arthritis Foundation but before we get there let's talk about the game the game is called Anti Social Skills I can't think of a better group of individuals <laughs> than comics and stand-ups to be involved in this tell us about the origin and how it works well, the origin was um, uh, earlier, so 2020 has been, uh, Jordan, a hell of a year, I can tell you. Yeah, I've noticed. Stuff has <laughs> um, I can't, like, I, I'm a huge Celtics fan, and so the whole Gordon Hayward ordeal, um, at the end of it, everyone was like, do you believe that? And I was like, of course. <laughs> it's just like, that's how 2020 goes. It's like, and the, the analogy I use for a lot of us is you can make it through this year okay, it's like the Seinfeld where Kramer comes down onto the baggage carousel and then just gets up and walks away with the two. Like, all right, let's go. <laughs> like, what? You know, like somehow he's okay. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, this summer, uh, I, I got divorced. And so uh, it was um, because of, and it was, you know, because of lockdown and the courts being closed and all that, it was a long dragged out divorce. And so it was a lot of, both, you know, just waiting and, you know, extra paperwork and, you know, things like that. And so finally went through and, um, you know, I would just say to anybody, I know, I guess everyone's experience is different, but you really don't know what a divorce feels like until you go through it. It really is jarring and you really, it's just, it's just sort of like when Fallon ended, it's just, you don't know even if you're involved in an ending or whatever, and you know it's coming and you've negotiated sure. whatever you want out of it, sure. and you have that thing when you're like, okay, it's done. It really hits you hard. And so the way it happened up with me was it went through, and then two hours later I went to go pick up my daughter, and I had to play dad uh, you know, for the next two or three days while I was kind of hiding this, like, oh, my mm. God, I'm divorced all of a sudden. Mm. And Sam Liberty, who... Is, was my best man at my wedding, is one of my best friends. Um, he was looking for people to play test uh, this new game he was working on. And he, he, that, that's his job. That's his gig. And that's what he does and what he knows. And I, um, I saw that he was looking for people to help. And I realized it was the afternoon after I would have dropped my daughter off. 
And I was like, and Sam had helped with a lot with the book idea. He'd helped me kind of calm down and organize my thoughts because he had a little background there too. And he's just a great friend. And I said, well, Sam's been such a great friend for me this year. And he's been there and he's checked in on me. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to help him out. He, I, I never helped him with his work. I'm going to help him out with this. And so I did. And, you know, I didn't want to do it. I wasn't in a good mood. And we got on Zoom, a bunch of us, and I didn't understand what it was just some game where it was like, you're given situations and you have to react to it. And there was no pre, there was no answers yet. There was no responses. Mm. So it was just the situations. And he and his partner, Wade, who I just met for the first time on that zoom, were working on it. And, um, my mood did not improve. (laughs) Everyone else was having fun and I was still just being a jerk. But the thing with me, and something I'm trying to manage, and this is why I do, like, anybody... Everyone, first of all, everyone should go to therapy of some kind. Agreed. Right now. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, everyone that's gone through <laughs> 2020 that is old enough to understand what's happening to us, you need to do some form of therapy. I'm just saying that, and if it just takes six months, fine, but, like, get yourself good and find a good, good space for yourself. And so, but one of the things I work on in therapy is, trying to find other ways to motivate myself and be creative. But one of the kind of cheats is whenever I'm in a bad mood and I'm really nasty and negative, I'm unintentionally funny. And it's just this, the new England sarcasm thing that I get from my mom and my uncles and all that stuff and just being a smart ass. And so, uh, you know, and Emerson and all that stuff, the darker I get, the more I try to be mean, the more people just laugh. And so I was being like that in this game, and everyone was laughing. And all of a sudden, they started having a good time. And I, I was at the end. I said this. I sent Sam. I called Sam. I was like, "Hey, man, I'm really sorry about that." And he was like, "What are you talking about? That was great." <laughs> and then I, I was like, "Oh, really?" And he was like, "Yeah, it really helped us out. We got some ideas. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on it?" And I was just bored, and you know, it wasn't working on anything at the time. And I was just like, "Yeah, I can send you a few thoughts tonight." So I just sent like a couple of things. And I got to be honest with you, the next thing I know, and people think I'm exaggerating this, but I was in such a dark place. I don't really remember exactly partnering with him. <laughs> like, it sounds weird, but like the next thing I knew, it was like I, I was in the middle of one of our regular Sunday night production meetings, where it was me, Sam, and Wade talking about the game. And I was like working on it. And, you know, to use another Kramer analogy, it was like I was like the one where he goes, and just get, starts working at an office. That's kind of how it was for me. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, they were like, could this be a comedy game? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I, you know, I started tapping into not just the monologue side, but also I learned from Vince at WWE about setting up stakes and setting up what the rules are and how people would follow it and, you know, what would entertain people. And was it too simple? Is it too complicated? And um, then it moved to, do you think you could get some comedians to work on it? And I said, oh, yeah, and I gave my list of people, and they said, "This, you know, all we can afford is, we're again, we're a small business. We haven't, we, the three of us, to this point, you know, have not gotten our money back yet. Uh, I think we will uh, soon, but, like, we're just a small business, three of us, and they're like, we only have this budget. Um, you know, we only can afford six people. I said, okay, well, here's, a, I have six people in mind. I'm going to try to get you four, and then we'll figure things out. And then to my surprise, every single person was in. And, uh, like, it was, you know, like Mike Kaplan, for instance, was someone I, in Boston, that I, oh, yeah. you know, just worshipped. I mean, He's we all so did. funny. And he was, you know, just a big guy. And uh, we, as soon as we got Mike, 
I called Sam. I was like, I just got, he knew my, I was like, yeah, he's famous. I got, I just got Mike Kaplan. He's like, yeah, you did. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, and so then he came and played with us. And then, uh, you know, Jenny Zagrino, who, um, she and I, I mean, that was a sad thing. Is that right before lockdown, we were about to go make a deal to develop this pilot that I've been working on now for two years. And it opens on an open airport scene. And I had to call her and be like, yeah, so there's a pandemic. And I think we're going to get really bad news here mm. any day. And so I, was, I called her and I said, well, we lost that. How'd you like to work on this smaller project? Oh, I mean, okay. She was in. And it just became this thing. Where yeah. The next thing I knew, it was all these people that I was great friends with, a lot of whom had met, and I was getting to introduce them. And it just kind of steamrolled. And the first time we played as a team, which is up on YouTube, game one and game two, I believe, it's the writers playing for the first time. Right off the bat, there was like the first one, everyone was just dying laughing. And I messaged Sam in the Zoom, and I was like, I think this is a thing. And he was like, yeah, I think so. And well, it, it's, it's appropriate off. to do something like this now uh, in a particularly politically sensitive time. It's nice to just see people reacting the way comedians focus and say what we're really thinking. I say we, the ordinary folk out here, is really is really great. I want to remind people that it's I just got a Kramer uh, reference like Ashman, the license plate. It's ass kills a s s k i l l s dot com. You're throwing so yeah, many I Kramer wanna, references. I just want to take a moment and bask in the fact that. I got I got Jordan Rich to say ass kills. You that's did. My, you did. Yeah, you did. that's my. <laughs> I, I've never I played say, the Catskills, but I've said ass kills. As a lifelong, <laughs> I got to tell you, I've been listening to WBZ since I was, I think, one year old. That's that's. It's no surprise that I'm in this business because I didn't like music to go to sleep to. I, oh. I used to listen to Larry Glick and Norm Nathan and Dave Maynard to go to sleep when I was a baby and growing up. And so I'm very familiar with you, Jordan, and Jordan Rich, and I have to say it's one of the highlights of my comedic career that I just got Jordan Rich to say. Skills.com. <laughs> hey, before we yeah. before we sign off, and you've been great, John, I really appreciate it. Uh, you alluded to the fact that you're dealing with and have dealt with arthritis in your own life, and I just wanted you to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the work you're doing and the importance of focus on arthritis, uh, because you, you have it and you know what it can do to people, and uh, just a word or two on that, if you would. Yeah, just quick. It's two things, actually. I mean, in twenty in early 2018, I had a, a, a TIA mini-stroke, and that mm. was something that runs in the family, and that was uh, literally just from not taking doctor's advice and, and not eating enough and not drinking enough liquids. And um, the thing with that is it can be a repressed memory. You know, you don't necessarily get knocked out. You kind of just can keep moving from it. And so what I say to people now is in that respect, make sure you eat, uh, make sure you sleep, and listen to your doctors. And if you have, if you're walking along, you know, and you're in your 30s in particular, uh, you feel that weird pinch in your head or your neck, and you kind of get dizzy for a second. Go to a doctor. Go see mm. somebody. Call somebody. Get Good it checked advice. out. Good advice. Because when that stuff lingers for three or four months, it gets to be a little too late, and you have a lot of problems because of it. So that's the one thing. As far as your arthritis goes, um, I was diagnosed when I was uh, 16, and. Um, so when we had the summer this year, everybody's like, well, how are we going to have a summer to not go outside? I was like, well, I know I've done that <laughs> because that was my summer when I was 16. Mm. And so um, people always say, well, rheumatoid arthritis, where do you have it? I was like, no, everywhere. Like I literally mm. had it from my ankles up to my neck and I uh, was going to have to be in a wheelchair and I was going to have to have a handicap passed. And then it can turned into 
you're, you know, you're going to have to miss the first six weeks of school and all this stuff. And I was very lucky. And then I found a rheumatologist named, uh, she's since retired, but her name is uh, Constance Passis, and she was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and one of the best in the world. It lucked out that she just happened to be right up the road. And she had this, she made the diagnosis. No one could figure out what was going on. They thought it was Lyme disease. They thought it was, you know, I, um, they thought it was lupus. And then it was cancer. I had the colonoscopy. And it was just like no one could, I was in such bad shape with the swelling that they were like, you really can't figure this out. And I forget what she did, but there was this test she ran. And she was like, I have enough that I know that this is arthritis. And 48 hours later, I was better. And I didn't miss a day of school. And um, so, but it stays with you. And that's what you have to realize is that, um, you know, it's a, to this point, at least a lifelong disease. And I'm doing well, but there are certain things like, um, like I said, I can't, I can't write with a pencil or a pen. Um, I, you know, like, it's really embarrassing. My daughter, I can pick her up and throw her up in the air and do a somersault and stuff. And then she's like, can you open this? package or whatever yeah, i'm like right, uh, you right. know <laughs> if i'm you know i uh, call my you know like uh, grammy she's in here and help with the you know yeah. ladies pack. You know, I, I, I get you yeah fingers. yeah i, I know so people who have I it so i know what you're saying yeah. yeah and so i did some fundraisers in uh high school for it um for the arthritis foundation i did a show with judy gold who also has uh ra in new york and that was a thrill for me because not only was it getting to help out with the arthritis cause that I mean, Judy gold, oh, you know, like comedy, comedy legend. And so yeah. that's how I got to be friends with her. And you, you know, you meet, you meet people out of this and, and, and bond and share your experiences. And, uh, but from what I've heard, there've been some very good signs that have kind of gone under the radar this year because we've all rightfully so been focused on COVID, but it sounds like there's some good developments and there've been some good breakthroughs. And so one of the first things, uh, I'm going to do once lockdown is over and it's, you don't, you know, and you can just collectively go into the hospital again safely, um, is, uh, try out a couple of these new things. Mm. I know in particular there's uh, a new drug, I think being tested, a new treatment for that you do something with your spine and it can really relieve some of the symptoms. And, um, so I'm going to be doing that. And so I would encourage people to, I know all the talk is about one thing right now, health wise, and that's, it should be. But if you have rheumatoid arthritis, I have to remind myself just a couple times a month, just Google it, see what's going on, yeah, see yeah. what developments are being made so that when we come out of this crazy time, uh, you can go take advantage of it. And I, I would I would love to do something more with the Arthritis Foundation. I have to admit, when I got in that Fallon bubble, it was just such a busy full-time mm. gig that I was only able to do like Judy's shows and other people's shows, and I just didn't have time to organize it. But I'd love to do that again. And if you have it, same thing as before. Uh, a lot of people say to me, well, I have it, but if I take the medicine, that means I can't drink. Well, give up drinking. I lucked out in that I got sick before, right when you would be trying drinking is when I got sick. And so I never became a drinker. Mm. But I, I did love other things. I loved like fried clams, popcorn, things like that. And uh, years and years put off giving them up. And then finally, about three or four years ago, I think right when my daughter was on the way, or so longer, I was like, I got to stop this. Like I got, you know, if I'm going to play with a kid and then, you know, be able to do things. And so I just stopped and I, I don't have plans anymore. I don't eat popcorn anymore. I drink tons of water. I do a lot of stretching. I go for walks. I stretch after the walk. And so I would just say to people that 
you have to always think the end game. So if you're in your 30s or your 40s and you're like, yeah, I have rheumatoid arthritis, but, you know, I can still go about my life, great. But what? think about Glenn Fry from the Eagles, who I hate, I'm just going to be blunt, he died from rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. And that was the wake-up call for me. That hmm. It was like, okay, man, it's time to cut out the food. It's time to exercise a little bit differently. Uh, it's time to drink more water. Because it's not now. What you really have to think about is who are you going to be when you're 65, say it's 70, 75. Because if you don't take, take care of your body now, um, if you're having trouble, like, you, you know, if you have trouble getting out of bed in your mid-30s and your ankles crack and creak and crack and you're one of those, yeah, but after five minutes, I'm fine. Remember those first five minutes. Because if you don't take care of business now, that's going to be your life when you're 65, 70, 75. Excellent point. And yeah. people are living more and more now, living yeah. longer and longer. So if you're going to live longer anyway, don't you want to feel better? Don't you want to be in good shape? And yeah. um, and the other thing I would say to people is once you make those changes, it'll you know take a week or two to get used to. The first time that you're at the movies and you smell that popcorn butter and you don't get it, it yeah, it stinks and it ruins the movie for you. I'd be happy just I'm, to get back to the movies. Wait a minute. Wait yeah, a I would too. I'll forget. I'll yeah, skip the after, popcorn anytime yeah, <laughs> just to get back after, to movies. But after just a few weeks of living that different lifestyle, right. you get used to it and you adjust yeah. to it. And then you, when you come inside the house on a summer day and you're like, I need something cold to drink, you go right to the water. You get a flavored water or whatever, and you don't miss the soda anymore. Good point. So I would say just the Good sooner points. you make that adjustment, the better. And then it really is easy to stick to. And it's that's a whole lot better than... You know, as we know about the drug you know, epidemic in this country, it's like a whole lot better than getting addicted to painkillers or whatever. So right. I would say try to just make those changes and challenge yourself now while you're on lockdown and you're working from home and just see if you can do little things that right. might be tougher to do in your everyday life. And so that if you get nothing else out of this time at home, you're, you feel better, you're in better shape, and you're in better shape to go afterwards. Well, John, it's been a pleasure. You are a brilliant writer with so many great credits to your name and so many more to come. And I also want to say I really appreciate the Nomar batting glove reference because I'm a local kid, too. Come on. I mean, I caught that yeah, and yeah, I said, yeah. I knew what you're talking about, man. I, I got it. But uh, we wish you the best and uh, we'll certainly promote AskKills.com, <laughs> the antisocial <laughs> skills game. John Ryman, it's been a real pleasure, man. Be well. Thank you very much. Thanks again to a man with a terrific comedy resume, John Reinman. You can find out about all of his activities both on and off stage at reinmania.com. That's R-I-N-E mania.com. And don't forget to check out the new game, Anti-Social Skills. It's a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for joining us today, and thank you for your support throughout the year. We have listeners in 95-plus countries these days, and the audience is growing every single week. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. You can also order my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, now available at amazon.com. I want to say, as always, be well so you can do good. This is Jordan Rich. Take care.